Okay, well, we made the point last week, and I'd like to underline it once more. Advent, the season leading up to Christmas, is about looking backward and looking forward to the once and yet future coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, it's a season about waiting. Our deliverance from this present evil age, as the apostle calls it, comes in two segments, something unforeseen by the prophets and for a time even the apostles. We think of them as Jesus ascended to heaven, is at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. It's unforeseen, this split. First comes the incarnation when the seed is planted, and then later the day of revelation when the sun returns to gather in the harvest. So it's a strange situation, ours. We are saved, and yet being saved. It's already present, our salvation, and yet not quite manifest. The sun has come and is coming again. And it can all be summed up in the apostles' words in First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, rather, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, there for you on the screen. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, we have turned from idols to God, and what is left for us to do? The apostle says, only to wait, to wait for the Father's Son from heaven. Now, those words, to wait, define not only this Advent season, not only what we're up to here, but the entire church's existence. It calls to mind a theme that runs through the heart of so many of Jesus' parables. Think of the businessman who goes away on a far trip and leaves all his wealth to his servants to steward well. Or the landowner who travels to distant lands and commits his estate and his servants to um, other servants. Or the bridegroom who comes at an unexpected hour and expects to find the women ready. And in these parables, there really is no middle ground. Either one is waiting, that is, found diligent and faithful in the duties committed to them, or one is caught sleeping, having neglected their responsibilities for one reason or another. Now, such is our situation. We can either be dressed in readiness with our lamps lit, prepared to open the door when the master comes and knocks, or startled out of sleep when Jesus comes like a thief in the night. So we're waiting, and we have an either-or option. We can be ready or we can be negligent. And those either-or options are present in our passage this morning, Psalm 10. Last week in Psalm 6, there was one person in the waiting room, so to speak, the psalmist crying out to God, how long do you Return to me. Now this week, there are two people in the waiting room. Uh, The psalmist, 
the poor man and his oppressor. And what we find is that both these people are waiting. Both of them are waiting on the Lord, but in drastically different manners. God seems to be absent. And so the psalmist cries out, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But the wicked man, he says, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. So, the divine silence, the same divine silence is to one the cause of agony and almost desperation. And to the other, it's something to be exploited. God doesn't see and therefore he takes advantage. And so, in our passage, behind these two different reactions stands one event, namely the Lord's silence. And in this psalm, that waiting upon the Lord takes a distinctly social flavor. We have left behind the interior dimension of the psalmist's pleas that we considered last week, and we've entered upon a very public stage, one where justice and righteousness and equity are the matter. And the Lord's silence, or what from our human perspective seems like silence, in relation to our interior lives, means that we're given over to the power of sin. Remember last week he was crying, Lord, save me, come help me, deliver me from my trials. Now here, in relation to the exterior world, the Lord's silence means that unrighteousness and injustice are allowed to spread in the world. So the divine silence, that there's no intervention and judgment on behalf of God, provides an opportunity for wicked men to exploit for their own ends. The poor man is afflicted and persecuted by the proud, and it seems that no one's there to hear his cry. No deliverance comes, and so he pleads in verse 1, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And this, remember, much like last week, is not a prayer that arises from unbelief, but a firm conviction in the Lord's identity. The psalmist, presumably David, knows in whom he's trusted. That God is indeed righteous and just altogether. And that he does not take lightly the persecution of the vulnerable and the poor. And this he learned from the Exodus. God does not stand idly by while the oppressor tramples his people underfoot. He sees their suffering. He hears their cries and he acts. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, he says. Exodus chapter 3. I am aware of their sufferings, so I have come to deliver them. So this is the Lord, the one who pleads the cause of the weak, the one who intervenes on their behalf to execute justice in the world. But the psalmist asks, if that is who God is, then why is he not answering the prayer of the weak? The psalmist finds himself, as we sometimes do, between two irreconcilable things, the Lord's justice and the injustice of the world. And it's only in that space, confronted by these two incommensurable things, 
that our faith can be faith. That's the only space where it can grow. Faith, the author of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things not seen. And in this case, it's the assurance that in the midst of injustice and oppression, that the Lord is just, even when he's not acting. And so this prayer, we said, springs from a resilient faith, and it does. But a resilient faith doesn't always look like what we might expect it. Placidly resigned to our fates, telling ourselves, according to thy will, O Lord, whatever you have. But rather, a strong faith often looks like this. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why are you hiding yourself? So put otherwise, a strong faith wrestles. Faith is tough and it's hard-nosed, like Jacob who wrestled with the angel to receive a divine blessing. I will not let you go until you bless me. That's the same spirit of this psalm. Lord, where are you? Rescue me, deliver. So discouragement and despondency come, but faith presses through them because it believes what it doesn't see. It has assurance that behind the situation, God will answer. And so faith doesn't stop striving. And this is what the psalmist does. Almost as if to bring it before the Lord's eyes. He says, Lord, why are you not watching? Why are you not doing anything? So he recounts it to the Lord. He says, look at my trouble. If we turn to verse 3, I'll read to verse 11. He says, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. And this is his prayer to God. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the village, villages, in hiding places. He kills the innocent. He stealthily watch for the, his eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So this entire section subdivides into three stanzas each, each ending with the wicked man's own words. So the psalmist recounts his oppressor's pride and arrogance and says, all his thoughts are, there is no God. He then rehearses his persecutor's prosperity and abundance and concludes, he says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. And lastly, he recalls the wicked man's deception and violence. Culminating in these words, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He is hidden in his face and he will never see it. So the poor grows weak in the Lord's silence. He comes to despair and agony, and the strong grows stronger still. For him, the seeming absence of any accountability or recompense in the world emboldens him to pursue his ends by whatever means. He acts to increase himself, and he does so with impunity. 
God has forgotten. He'll never see, he says to himself. And so it seems there's no one to deliver from his hands. He can do whatever he he wants. And so apart from God's intervention, apart from God establishing justice in the world, this is what becomes of human society. The strong dominate the weak, exploiting and abusing them to their own ends. And the psalmist describes the wicked man's oppression in two ways. He acts through deception and violence. He sits in lurking places, in the hiding places. His eyes stealthily watch. He lurks in a hiding place, and on and on it goes. So he promises that such and such an investment or program or career will set the poor man back on his feet. That if only he would buy into this one thing, he would be fine. While all the while he intends to exploit this man and not to help him. He preys upon the poor man's desperation, dangling hope before him, only to crush what little remains. He puts on a good face up front, and then he bares his teeth later. The psalmist says, he sits in lurking places, in the hiding places he kills the innocent. He is compared to a beast, a lion, crouching, bowing, uh, uh, and then finally pouncing upon the vulnerable. Whether Whether by means of deception or not, the wicked man means to murder the poor and innocent. And he sends his emissaries, his mighty ones, to destroy them. And so as the psalmist puts the exploitation and domination of the afflicted before God's eyes and says, look, Lord, do something, help us. So the scripture puts it before our eyes. Now, our situation is not comparable to the one described here by any stretch of the imagination. Now, there are times, certainly in our lives, when the adversary schemes to ensnare us. That situation is not all too uncommon. The difference is that we are not vulnerable like the people described in these words. We have the recourse to the law, to uh, financial and social resources to draw from, essentially barriers and safeguards that stand between us and the oppressor. And truth be told, that's why they rarely come for us, because they won't succeed. We can fight them off. But against the powerless, right, against the vulnerable who don't have the advantages that we have, the oppressor does succeed. And this is where, right, let's face it, as prosperous and comfortable middle-class Americans, the scriptures call us outside ourselves to consider the wider world, matters of justice and righteousness around us. Now, we cannot relate to these words only sparingly, And we should not spiritualize them. But there are those, even within our own community, who do. And Advent reminds us, when we sing and read about these themes of a king coming to establish righteousness and justice, to decide with fairness for the poor, it reminds us that the Lord came chiefly for these people, those who are crushed in this world. And in that sense, the scriptures do correct an imbalance that may have or may not have crept into our lives. 
the one that tilts too heavily toward our religion being merely an inward thing. It becomes otherworldly in nature, and not in the good way, but in the indifferent way. It's essentially the kind of religion that our governmental structure wants us to have, the so-called separation of church and state that turns religion into something merely personal and private, confined to the believer's heart and confined to the church's walls. Keep it there and it doesn't, don't bring it out here because it doesn't belong here. And it has nothing to do with matters of justice and righteousness and equity. And what happens is a form of quietism descends upon the faith. Unwittingly or with our own consent, we exclude ourselves from the conversation. God essentially has nothing to say about the matters that go on in the nation and in the world. But again, such a stance cannot be reconciled with the Scriptures. There is much concern with justice for the poor and vulnerable as they are with our personal piety and devotion. And again, as we wait upon the Lord, Advent calls us, along with this psalmist, to cast our eyes upon the evil that pervades the world and to join in his prayer. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. In his recent article, Systematic Evil and the, and the Justice of Advent, Peter Lightheart, he says this, We live in a world of systematic evil. Asian and Latin American drug cartels produce and transport their merchandise with impunity because they have bought off or killed public officials who would stop them and the journalists who would expose them. On the other side of the world, corner dealers battle for turf to sell to the wretched addicts who stumble and sleep on the sidewalks of American cities. Sex traffickers in Thailand entice vulnerable girls and boys into sex slavery and bribe politicians to turn a blind eye as they sell perverse fantasies to thousands of wealthy Western sex tourists. Pharmaceutical companies conduct drug trials on unsuspecting Africans and conclude with health regulators to cover their tracks. For most of our history, the United States deprived blacks of liberty, dignity, and political and legal rights. Such injustices can't be resolved by moral exhortation or by rescuing individuals. As important as exhortation and rescue are, global systems are organized for the benefit of greedy brutes, and justice won't be done until these systems are demolished. And Advent reminds us that all that justice that we seek in this world is penultimate until Jesus comes. Such systems that run rampant the worldwide, will not be abolished until the kingdom of this world, Revelation 11, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And so we long, and this season teaches us to, for the advent of justice and righteousness and vindication, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having then recounted the troubles that daily come upon the poor, the psalmist revamps his plea once again. He, he says again, verse 12, Arise, O Lord God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He says to himself, you will not require it. Again, these dramatic upheavals of faith. And finally, faith breaks through past the way that things are, or the way that things appear to the way that things are. With the resolve and confidence that comes from God to his own comfort and to his enemy's terror, he explains, verse 14, you have seen it, 
you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. And what comfort, truly what comfort those words are in our crooked and perverse world. The Lord sees. He sees. Every unrighteous and wicked deed that's perpetrated among the sons of men is taken into account by him who sees. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. It's accounted for. It's written down in the books that will be opened on that last day before the throne of God. And so how wrong the wicked are. They suppose that God is blind to their actions, that their deeds will not go marked and accounted for. But the very silence that they exploit ought to be the thing that they fear the most. It's not the Lord's absence as they suppose it to be, but his presence everywhere and completely manifest. The prophet Jeremiah here records the Lord's words. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So a God that the wicked could see and hear, a local presence within the world, is a God that they might hide from. They could cover their deeds in darkness and deception from such a God, but not the Lord who fills the heavens and the earth. They ought not to suppose impunity because they do not see and hear God, but the reverse. His absence is his presence. The silence is his voice. He is always watching, not indifferent, but ready to judge wickedness and violence. They crush your people, O Lord, the psalmist says in another psalm, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Then the psalmist says, pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? (laughs) He who planted the ear does not hear. Does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. The God who formed the ear hears. The God who fashioned the eye sees. And he will act. And ultimately, the psalmist's confidence where he turns from this despair now to almost triumph over his enemies, it stems from the divine identity. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord is king forever and ever. And what is the measure of the Lord's kingship? Psalms 93 through 99, I encourage you to read them. They're great for this time of the year, are explicitly about the divine rule. And they ring with the refrain, the Lord reigns. Yahweh Malak. Again, the Lord reigns. And so these Psalms tell us what it means for God to be king. I'll read for you two excerpts. Let the sea roar and all that it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. Listen, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9. The whole world rejoices because the king comes to establish justice. Psalm 99, verses 4 through 5. The king, the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So amidst the swirling injustice, the psalmist comes up against the backstop. And that backstop is the divine justice that takes account and promises to settle accounts. And once again, so emboldened is the psalmist that he breaks into prophetic speech. Verses 17 and 18. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. What a change from the beginning of the psalm. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He knows that even though he may die at his oppressor's hands, that God will settle things. The Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, the scripture says, and justice for the poor. If not now, then certainly at some point, the psalmist is assured, the Lord will accomplish deliverance for the vulnerable. He will look on their suffering and he will answer. And here, in these themes, is where we make an explicit turn toward Advent. The psalmist's hope, vindication for the poor, is never quite realized in the nation's history, or for that matter, any nation's history. Small deliverances have been wrought, to be sure, but nothing of the magnitude that these words call for. Israel's kings, though they were charged to rule with justice and righteousness, had largely largely failed their duty. The prophet's writings so often testify to this. Isaiah, in chapter 5, verse 7 of his writing, says, He looked for justice, God did, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The nation that... The vine dresser planted to bear fruit pleasing to him produced instead bloodshed and distress. The psalmist cries had not been answered. They remained unfulfilled, but they would be answered. The prophet Isaiah again proclaims in a passage so familiar these days that I didn't include. For a child will be born to us, Isaiah 9. (laughs) it's the Lord speaking for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father prince of peace there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So our celebration this season is about a promised king come to institute righteousness and justice upon the earth. 
In other words, Advent, in other words, Advent commemorates, celebrates, and kindles hope for the justice of God. And that is good news. And thus, as we've already stated, the child born to us is not merely about our inner consolation, though true that is. It's also about the promise of a very public justice. Jesus is coming. Advent is the church's glad proclamation to oppressors and violent men, the worldwide, that their days are numbered, that God sees. Jesus Christ has come, is coming to answer the psalmist's prayer, to break the arm of sex traffickers, drug lords, arms dealers, and all their respectable collaborators, and to rescue the poor from their jaws. And is this not what Mary celebrates? Gabriel announces that the king would be born to her, David's greater son, and she burst into song. I don't know what I'm up to here. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So the baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid there in the feeding trough, is destined to turn the world upside down, or better, right side up, to bring the justice and the righteousness that our hearts so long for. But, and this is the mystery, that justice comes in two stages, as we alluded to at the beginning. King Jesus' initial arrival into this world is, we might say, the last admonition to wicked and unjust men. What the prophets anticipated as one event is split into two, that God might grant time for repentance. Jesus did come to institute righteousness, but first, he chose to suffer affliction with the poor. He was born as the poor. Among them, he came in the form, what, of a slave, Philippians 2. And so this, that the king has come to the poor as one of the poor, is the coming judgment anticipated and foretold. It's a definitive sign as to who, whose side God is really on. He sides with the victims over and against their oppressors by literally becoming a victim. By oppression and judgment, Psalm or Isaiah 53, he was taken away. And so he was born, and in his birth, King Herod stands for every pompous earthly king. When the humble king was born, the scripture says in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod heard this, and he was deeply distressed. The humble king was born, and the proud king was deeply distressed. So the true king, common born in mother's arms, without a sword, no armored guard, is God's last admonition to the Herods and to the Pilots of the world. Look upon his humility and be humbled. Look upon his meekness and become meek. See him in his humility and be saved. And so we began by noting this divine absence, God's silence, and how it's exploited by the proud and agonized over by the afflicted. And, of course, the question arises, why? Now, here we can provide something of an answer. 
because God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God's mercy is for the just and the unjust, for the victim and the oppressor. The Lord is not slack, 1 Peter 2.3, as some count slackness, but delays that even the most entrenched sinners might be welcomed into his kingdom. But what of us, right? Where are we in this time, in this waiting? Well, the psalmist prayer falls to us. Psalm 10, 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Now, shocking though this prayer may be to our sensibilities, it's not an illegitimate request. These cries in the Psalms for judgment upon the enemy are not abolished in Jesus, but rather resituated. And a queasiness about them may indicate a flaw in our understanding. If we cannot pray for the manifestation of God's righteousness and justice against evil, it's because we've lost the sense that divine judgment is good news. It is a cause for rejoicing that God intervenes to frustrate and to bring to naught the plans of wicked men. As the scriptures bear out, that psalm we just sang, the rivers clap their hands, the mountains sing for joy because the judge is coming. But we also recognize that all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus Christ. And so it cannot be vindictive or malicious. Because, of course, there's nothing vindictive or malicious in him. The judge is, in fact, the one who bears the scars as one who loves to the very end. His judgment is an expression of his holy desire, his jealous desire to root out from us everything that would keep us from him. And so to pray for divine justice with the psalmist is ultimately not to wish eternal damnation on our foes, which, as the scripture says, God doesn't want. He wants everyone to come to repentance, and certainly that would be sinful. But instead, it's to ask that injustice and unrighteousness might be exposed to Jesus, who puts to death only that he might bring to life once again. We pray these words because whatever justice that God meets out is always an expression of his love, even for the wicked and the unrighteous although that love may finally be a consuming fire. So such prayers break the arm of the wicked, seek to end the ever-increasing path toward violence and destruction. And really, it's an act of mercy. It asks God to stop the self-destruction of the enemy and their destruction of others. And it's fundamentally for the good of those that we're praying against. And so as we conclude now, the psalmist's prayer, of course, turns us outward toward our hope. Advent teaches us to kindle hope for the day when Jesus returns to judge the world in justice and all the people's inequity. And as we prepare to share communion, there really is nothing better to consider. We partake these elements now in anticipation of when Jesus says we'll take them again in the kingdom with him. The Prince of Peace will have come and established his kingdom of peace and the former things will have been no more. And so we look forward to judgment. 
It's good news, even in our lives. Because the judge has been judged in our place. And that frees us up on that final day to accept final judgment. We'll pass through the fires of judgment, not to be burned up, right? not to be destroyed ourselves, but to be purified. 1 Corinthians 3. Every injustice and unrighteousness in our lives, it will be judged and it will be put away forever. And then we'll stand before God in glory, conformed to the image of his Son. So now as we get ready to partake of these elements and all they mean, I'd like to just give you some time to respond to the coming of the King and what that means for us and ultimately what that means for the world when he returns. So do that now.